Please stand as you're able to for the reading of today's scripture from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 23. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that you may know that, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world began. I have made your name known to those who you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on your behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those who you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have, may have my joy be complete, complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as you are one. I in them, and you in me, and that, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them even, even as you have loved me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Lonnie, thank you so much for reading uh, chapter 17, the Gospel of John. Uh, thank you to Mark Edwards, who is pinch-hitting today, for James Wells, who is not with us. We're grateful to Mark for his ministry, and Toy for your prayer, Adam for leading us, and all of you for your presence here and for our friends who are streaming from many places. Uh, we welcome you. Well, if you have been with us since the middle of August, you know that today we come to the conclusion of the series called Teach Us to Pray. We have spent the last nine weeks consecutively in Luke's gospel exclusively because Luke, more than any other of the gospel narratives, seems to accent and highlight the prayer life of Jesus. Certainly in Luke's gospel, we can see that it was obvious to his friends that the secret sauce of Jesus' ministry 
was because of his unceasing communion with the Father. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it's interesting in Luke chapter 11 that this is the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them, teach us to pray. And he did, and he does, and he will. But this morning, we're going to leave Luke for this last message to turn to the gospel of John, the fourth gospel. The text that Lonnie read, I I asked him to read the whole chapter, uh, is a part of a section in the body of John called the Farewell Discourse. And that particular, there are five chapters there that are peculiar to the Gospel of John. It runs from chapter 13 to chapter 17, and he read the prayer that concludes the Farewell Discourse. Now, I want to give you some context. The Farewell Discourse, according to John's Gospel, takes place in the context of Holy Week, specifically on Maundy Thursday, or as we called it a couple of weeks ago, Mandate Thursday, when Jesus said, a new mandate I give unto you that you're to love one another. On this night, Jesus is preparing his friends for his departure. He has already washed their feet. You remember that. He has prepared the meal, the Seder meal. He has served the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper as we call it. He has spoken and predicted betrayal. He has promised a comforter, a counselor, a Holy Spirit that will be the presence of Christ beyond Holy Week with his friends. And then he concludes this section with this incredible prayer. This what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There are those who call it the real Lord's Prayer. It's different from the Our Father that we find in Matthew and John, though it contains similar elements. What's interesting to me is at the end of this section, Jesus doesn't just give some good advice to his friends. He concludes with a potent prayer. Chapters 13 through 16, he's talking to his friends about God. But in chapter 17, he's talking to God about his friends. He closes with prayer. Now, I don't know if you've witnessed this or not. I think you have even today. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. Now, I'm not talking about being overly judgmental or or hypercritical, but I'm saying that if you pay attention, you can discern what we value and what we esteem by what we pray about by our supplications, our petitions. Would that be true of Toy King this morning? I get the idea when I hear Toy pray that she's done that before a time or two and that she's unceasing in her prayer with God. And I appreciate so much the way that she not only praises God, but exhorts God to come and to be with us. If that's true in general, it's certainly true in chapter 17 because here we're given a window seat into the very soul of Jesus. And he begins by praying for himself. Every now and then I'll talk to someone who says, I feel a little bit selfish. I feel like God has bigger things to do than to worry about my little prayers. Don't think that for a moment. It is never egotistical to pray for yourself. And Jesus taught us to do it. He begins by praying for himself. And he begins the prayer with these words, Father, 
the hour has come. Now, if you know John's gospel, you know that that's a recurring phrase, the hour, the hour. Jesus repeatedly speaks of his hour in John's gospel. What does it mean? You see it first in chapter 2 of John's gospel at the wedding party in Cana of Galilee where Jesus' mother, Mary, calls his attention to the dwindling wine supply, and Jesus replies in a very unusual way, my hour has not yet come. You see that again in chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem, and some of the religious elders want to kidnap Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, you see it again. There's a group that tries to incarcerate, to arrest Jesus by force, but his hour had not yet come. And finally, in chapter 12 of John, after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he says, my hour has come. You see the same thing in chapter 17, where Jesus looks up to heaven, which is first century, the posture of prayer. It's not bowing and closing eyes. It's looking upward to heaven. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. What does that mean? What hour? It's the hour of glorification. It's the hour of exaltation. Now notice, in the remainder of the prayer, Jesus prays, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. I've underscored that word glorify, glory. That word is used 42 times in John's gospel. In fact, the word in Greek is doxa, which is the root of our word doxology, which means honor, praise, splendor, glory. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of glory, I think of fame and fortune. I think of big money. I think of prosperity and privilege and power, but not Jesus. For Jesus, glory is not so much about exalting oneself, it's about humbling oneself. One said it like this, humility is greatness in plain clothes. I love that. Here's another, humility is royalty without a crown. Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Another translation says it like this. Father, make visible your presence in me. Another paraphrase, reveal, O oh God, your splendor through me. And then God answers that prayer the very next day at Golgotha, where the glory of God looks like that. Talk about countercultural. The splendor of God is suffering love. In fact, he said it earlier in the farewell section, greater love hath no man than a man who lays down his life for his friends. That's the glory of God. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's praying that God will empower him to face this hour, to go the distance, to finish the course. In fact, 
John is the only gospel that says among the last words of Jesus spoken from the cross, he said, it is finished. What's finished? His objective, his purpose, his vocation, his reason for being. What he's saying is mission accomplished. His mission and yours and mine is never found in self-aggrandizement or self-fulfillment. It's in self-emptying. Secondly, in this high priestly prayer, the real Lord's prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples. And specifically, what he prays for his disciples, watch this, he prays for their protection. In fact, twice in chapter 17, he asked God for protection for his disciples. Protection from what? Protection from hardship? Protection from trial or suffering or adversity? No. I mean, you would have to live on another planet to be free from that. But if you were on another planet, you'd still have trouble because you would still be with you. Anybody remember the old classic Pogo cartoon? It it said this, we have met the enemy and he is us. I am my own worst enemy. You know how I know that? My wife told me that. Sometimes our blessings are also our challenges. And the truth of the matter, and this is why we need repentance, is because we are often our own (laughs) worst enemy. Somebody asked me occasionally, are you staying out of trouble? And I say, uh, no, the nature of what I do is trouble. In fact, your trouble is my job security in many ways. And how interesting it is that Jesus laments in this prayer over the trouble that his disciples will face. He even goes so far as to say that you may actually be hated by the world that we live in, not in spite of your faith, but because of it. In fact, that was happening in John's community at the very time of his writing. And yet Jesus is crystal clear that this does not give us license to hate in response to hate. There are some things that only love can do. There are some things that only suffering love can change. Only love can turn prejudice into acceptance. Only suffering love can change vengeance into forgiveness. Only suffering love can take meanness and turn it into kindness and judgment into mercy. But make no mistake about it, trouble comes with the frock. It comes with the territory. Jesus never once taught us to pray, Lord, get me out of this mess, though I have prayed that. He taught us to say, Lord, help me not to succumb to evil in the midst of the mess. This is exactly what he said in John 17, 15. My prayer, O God, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them in the world from the evil one. 
Some of you know the name Holly Meyer, who's a reporter for the Tennessean. She had an interesting piece in the Tennessean last week about pastors and the pandemic. In fact, she cited a recent Lifeway poll of pressure points that pastors are experiencing. And by the way, I don't think these are only peculiar to pastors, but I think these are very true. And I have a slide of those pressure points. The first, the first is maintaining unity in the midst of conflict and complaint. Now, that never happens here, but it happens in other churches. Pastoral care from a distance, having a funeral when you can't invite the Sunday school class, that's a pressure point. The safety and well-being of our people, the personal exhaustion and stress of being isolated, the uncertainty of not having the answers for the direction for the future, the wisdom, the strategy, just staying connected, the plan for return. You can read all through that list, and, and I, I felt some of that, haven't you? Now, let me be clear, I'm not trying to garner any sympathy for pastors because the truth is, I think we are so blessed to get to do what we do. And my father taught me a long time ago that parishioners put up with a lot more than preachers do. And sometimes that's because of us. But I was reminded when I read that uh, poll that the most important thing that you can ever do for a pastor is to pray for him. And the most important thing that a pastor can do for you is to pray for you. Not to be removed from adversity, but to be protected so that you're not overcome by adversity, by evil. And Jesus taught us to pray like that. Now, I also know that sometimes we pray on leaders instead of for leaders. And I'm using pray, P-R-E-Y. Sometimes we're guilty of that. And look, if you read the scriptures carefully, you, you can't miss the fact that there's a cross involved. There's a death to self that has to happen in order for Christ to fully come into our lives. Paul said it like this, I die every day to me so that Christ can live within me. And that's not just true for clergy, that's true for all disciples. Cross-bearing can be stressful. Cross-bearing can be costly. It was before the pandemic and it will be after the pandemic. But Jesus made it clear in that little parable of the sower and the seeds that you don't stop planting just because the soil is crusty. In fact, in John chapter 6, I love that passage when, when Jesus started talking about the struggle of discipleship, the crowds all of a sudden began to thin out. And Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and said, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter said, Lord, we don't know where else to go. <laughs> you have the words of life. And so they stuck with Jesus. I'm sticking 
with Jesus, not because he's a good way, not because he's the best way. He's the only way I know. Life eternal, says John, is knowing Jesus and the Father who sent him. That's what I know. Some of you read Bishop Joe Pennell's ponderings, yes? I love his ponderings, succinct little bits of wisdom that he shares with us. This past week, he shared with us a little story of a lay leader who came to him when he was bishop in Virginia. And he said to him these words, Bishop Pennell, could you send us a pastor who not only knows about Jesus, but who knows Jesus? He prayed for himself, he prayed for his friends, and then watch this at the end. At the end, Jesus prays for us. He prayed for you. He prayed for me. Not only am I praying for these, said Jesus, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me because of their word. I pray that they will be, listen to this, one. Just as you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they will also be in us so that the world may know that you sent me. What was he praying for? Unity. He's not looking for uniformity. That's never going to happen in this world. We're never going to all look alike or think alike or act alike or vote alike and Even if we could, I'm not sure I'd want to live in a world where everybody was just like me. It's not uniformity. It's unity. It's oneness. It's not even about having the same perspective or all being for the Georgia Bulldogs or the Tennessee Volunteers. It's it's not about worldview. It's about confession. You know, one thing I think all of us may have in common, Jesus is Lord. That's where our unity, that's the source of our unity. And how do you know if Jesus is Lord of your life? It's in the farewell section. By this shall all people know that you're mine by the way that you love one another. Now, I don't have to tell you But we live in an age where every conceivable division is exploited. And sometimes the church is more a mirror of a splintered world. That's why to date, we literally, this is not imaginative, this is, we literally have 40,000 denominations of church in the world. And Jesus is still interceding for us for oneness not for unity's sake, but for the mission's sake, that the world may know that Jesus loves them too. Anybody see the debate last week? Senator Harris, Vice President Pence, it wasn't too bad. It was better than the first debate, praise God. But the best part of the debate to me was the last part. When the moderator quoted an eighth grade student from Springville, Utah named Brecklin Brown. 
She asked a really good question. She recently wrote an essay in which she was awarded first prize by the Utah Debate Commission. And you may remember the question, but I want to put it in context of her essay. Won't take but just 30 seconds. It's just one paragraph, but she got first prize. And this is what she said. When I watch the news, all I see are two candidates from opposing parties trying to tear each other down. If our leaders can't get along, how are the citizens supposed to get along? 13 years old. Our nation's capital is setting a poor example of unity and respect. No matter who we are and what we stand for, we all want to be heard and we all want to be acknowledged but no one wants to listen or understand the person on the other side of the line. Nothing is going to change until someone breaks this trend of arguments and anger. Each citizen is accountable and each citizen has their agency to not allow our country to be divided by differing opinions. And then she gets personal. Your examples could make all the difference to bring us together. And here's the question. How is your leadership going to unite and heal our country? Brecklin Brown gets my vote. She's 13. Now, I don't remember their answers, but I will never forget the question because I've been asking it of myself since last Wednesday. And today I'm asking you because I think that maybe, just maybe, your example can make the difference. How might my witness, how might your faith, your influence bring unity and healing in a crusty landscape? Last word. When we lived in Atlanta, we had some kids in our subdivision who set up a lemonade stand. I stopped on the way home. I ordered my cup. I gave them a couple of dollars and I started to leave. And one of the kids said, Brother Davis, we're, we're going to have to ask you to drink it here. And I said, why? And he said, because we only have one cup. Now, I have to admit, I wondered how long this had been the case. But as I said last week, there are some things I would rather not know. But it occurred to me later that in this community, we only have one cup. We only have one loaf. Maybe that's why Paul said, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the father of us all who is above all and through all and in all. We only have one cup. And Jesus is still interceding for oneness. 
My prayer is that his prayer might be answered in me and in you for the sake of the mission, for the unity of the body and the healing of the nation so that the world might know the love of God in Christ. But we only have one cup. 